Now, what I'm about to say may feel a little sacrilegious to some. Um, I believe that if it does, it's probably only because we've been deceived to think differently about the world. Um, Here it is. The success of worldly political structures depends on convincing us that we were made for this world. The success of worldly political structures depends on convincing us that we were made for this world, that this is all there is. The success of worldly political structures and its leaders depends on convincing us that, for example, that the American dream is really all there is. That the American dream of a good job, your own home, football on the weekends, and 2.5 kids, that that's the goal. And I'm aware of my audience. For some of us, it's not 2.5 kids. It's like, you know, 5.2 kids. Worldly political structures and those that lead them have to convince us that this is all there is. That your vote, that your vote is about making your life better for this world. And that's true as far as it goes. Your political vote, yes, in some sense, is about making your life better for this world. Don't hear me wrong. I'm going to say some things that may sound and feel weird and wrong to you, but, but don't get me wrong. Patriotism is a good thing. Please Do be aware of the issues. Vote for the right candidate in your heart. Know who you're voting for and why and what sort of political structure you're voting for. Go ahead, study the issues. Do it with integrity. Yes, do that. Patriotism is a good thing, but... (laughs) But... I'm here to tell us that we very desperately need. In fact, our nation desperately needs us to have a proper perspective about the place of politics in the world. Because, friends, your vote is not your life. Your vote is not your life. When we believe that this world is all there is, we place on these political structures undue weight that they simply cannot handle. Your vote is not your life. Some of us, in fact, perhaps need to ask ourselves, why do we care this passionately about who wins? Some of us need to be asking ourselves that question. Why do we care that passionately over against other things in our lives that probably deserve our passion? Why do we care that passionately about who wins? I'll tell you a little bit why in simple terms. When you act like your vote is your life, is life, your life depends on that vote, you're acting like this is all there is. When we place on political structures undue weight that they cannot handle, we have begun making these political symbols personal idols. Let me say that again. I believe this is Bible. I believe this is fundamentally important for us to get. And for some of you on the inside, I know some of you are feeling like, I don't like what he's saying. When we place on political structures, worldly 
political structures. Undue weight that they cannot handle. We have begun to make these political symbols personal idols. I I don't know where that is for you. I'm just saying we need to be aware of that. And, And what we're saying to the contrary in this series is that in God's kingdom, your life is your vote. Your life is your vote for a kingdom that lasts forever. Following Jesus, friends, isn't about being a consumer. (laughs) It's about being a contributor to the truth that there's a kingdom beyond this world. What we're saying is that the message of Jesus is basically the opposite of worldly political promises and messages. We're saying that your life is actually a vote for another kind of world that lasts forever that no politician can promise. That your life is meant to be a vote cast for the truth that God is who he claims to be. That he alone changes lives. That he alone brings salvation. And that lasting hope is found in the lasting truth that on earth the tomb is empty. And in heaven the throne is occupied. That's the most important truth. That's the primary political structure to which we must give our lives. Which is to say, God wants to use His power to bring people to Himself. And the crazy part is, when we're a part of the kingdom of God, we get to see Him use His power to do what no worldly structure can even pretend to do. Those are the bare facts of the matter of the issues of the issues for us here. And behind all this is the concept that the kingdom of God is a kingdom where God reigns and it lasts forever and it extends across the entire universe. This is a kingdom that goes beyond geography and race and socioeconomics. This is a kingdom that lasts forever with a king who is perfect, who uses his power for the good of those who submit to him, and it reaches beyond all the universe. And it's a truth, as we'll see today, that the kingdom of God would have been understood as a political concept in Jesus' culture. It would have been understood by those who first heard of Jesus coming and announcing the kingdom, proclaiming the gospel. It would have been heard as a political play. It would have been heard as a political claim. Turn to Mark 1 if you're not there yet. We're going to look at some cool stuff here at the beginning of Mark that helps us understand uh, what's going on here. We're going to do Mark 1, verse 1, 14, and 15. Just those three Primarily verse 1. Let's read all three of those together and then we'll jump back in at verse 1. It says this, Mark 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Verse 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, here are a few reasons from Mark 1. We'll look at more from Matthew 8. But here are a few reasons why this would be heard as a political claim. Verse 1, we're going to spend some time on just this one. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son 
of God. Mark begins here with the word beginning on purpose because he's recalling to mind for the reader the beginning of the creation of the world. This happens a few times in the Bible, primarily John 1, happens in 1 John, it happens in Colossians, it happens in Revelation, and it happens here in Mark. He's talking about the beginning, using that word on purpose to recall to mind the beginning of the word. So if, if Mark were, were here as a teenager, perhaps, he would say, dude, listen up. I mean, if he were an 80s California surfer teenager. <laughs> he would say, listen up, here's what's going on. Remember the creation of the world? Big deal, right? Big deal. I mean, does it get any bigger than the creation of the world? I mean, really, does it get any bigger? He's saying here, this, the coming of the gospel, the coming of the kingdom of God, Jesus coming with the power and authority of the Father to say the kingdom has arrived, this is as big a deal as that was. And so he's recalling to mind that creation story by using the word uh, beginning here on purpose. He's saying this is the beginning of the gospel. Now, another thing to note here is this word gospel. There's a lot of, a lot of color to what this word gospel means. And, and, and what we've found is, and, and this may be a bit surprising if you've not heard this before, but the word gospel wasn't first a Bible word. It was a word that was taken by the Bible, co-opted by the Bible, for the purpose of reframing it to use it for godly purposes. A lot of words are that way. Words aren't original to Jews or Christians. They had words before the Scripture. So it co-opted the word gospel. And the word gospel, everywhere we find it before the Bible, everywhere we find it, it's in a political context with political overtones. Let me give you some examples. It just means good news, but it was a particular kind of good news. It was used as an announcement of good news from the battlefield. Some of you remember this from a few weeks ago. And Mark, we talked about this, but it's helpful to go through again. It was used of good news from the battlefield. It was used as an announcement of the death of an enemy, of a political enemy. It was used to announce a royal wedding. And it was a used to announce when someone would acquire the throne. And it was lastly, fifth time, fifth way, it was also used to announce the birth of the successor to the throne. All five uses that we find of this word gospel had political overtones to them. And so it was used, for example, to, to announce the birth of the successor to the throne. In fact, Archaeologists have found an inscription, an inscription on a calendar uh, from 9 B.C., within a decade of Jesus' birth. It was, it was a calendar that hailed the birth of Caesar Augustus, the first great emperor of, of Rome, announced his birth as good news. It said, it said this, this inscription said, and I'm quoting, His birthday signaled the beginning of good news for the world. It's remarkably like what Mark says here. So just think about this. All of these types of uses of the word gospel announcements that we named, that we talked about outside of the Bible, are political contexts. So here's Mark. Something perhaps that Mark is the first to take this word gospel and use it in this way. So here's Mark in verse 1 of Mark 1. The very beginning of his account of the life of Jesus saying, saying, the beginning of the good news of Caesar Augustus. You think that's good news? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that's 
That's good news, he's saying. There's a lot more we could talk about. We could fill in the details about the political overtones of the the word son of God. And just in general terms, it's it's important to know that the Jews would hear somebody claiming to be the son of God to to be something that would have political overtones. Because they were waiting on the son of God to come and establish for them in the world, for them, a theocracy where God was king. That's what they were waiting for. And to hear somebody say, oh, the Son of God has arrived, would have political overtones for any Jew, for a non-Jew even. The emperors were hailed as divinity. The Roman Senate in 42 BC called Octavian Son of God. Divini Filius. So anyone reading this in this context would hear it as a claim to power. So catch you up to speed, one verse, Mark has made a statement about Jesus that without any doubt would have been understood as a radically political claim to the people in the first century. Now look at 14 to 15 briefly. It says this, after John was arrested, that's John the Baptist, and he was arrested not because he was a spiritual leader only, but because the Romans considered him a political threat See the beginning of Matthew 14 for that. John wasn't just arrested because he was part of a spiritual kingdom only, but because the movement was perceived by the political powers of the day as a threat to them. There's plenty of evidence of this, in fact, about how the Romans perceived Jesus. So back to the text, verse 14. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, meaning it's here now, it's at hand, you can touch it because I'm standing here. Then he says this, repent and believe in the gospel. Turn from the kingdoms of this world that will lead to your destruction through sin and believe in this other kingdom, capital K, where Jesus is Lord. Just think about the word kingdom, the word by itself is a political claim. The word by itself is a a political claim, and any Jewish person would naturally hear the kingdom of God as a theocratic political concept. For the average Jew of the day, the idea that, that God would come and actually reign over Israel was a fundamental of the faith. So just think about how this was heard in first century culture. I mean, it's hard for us because we know so little of, of, of total political control like they did. But there's no doubt that in a world like theirs, where kings kept their rule by killing people, anyone coming to call people to a new kingdom would be perceived as a political threat, as making a political statement. There's some other evidence from the New Testament. We're just going to run through bullet point real quick so that you understand there's, there's more context to this. John the Baptist was a political revolutionary. I mean, he announced the coming of the kingdom in ways that looked and seemed to those around him as political. He announced it in a desert, which is where revolutionaries went to gather the troops so that they could prepare and scheme against the overthrow of the government. He preached a message of repenting, of turning from the kingdoms of the world to the kingdom of God to follow a different Lord. 
religious and political authorities were worried enough about him to go and visit him and to check him out and see what he was doing. And he was ultimately uh, arrested and executed in part for being a political revolutionary. And when he dies, Jesus says, I'm the one he was talking about. (laughs) You think some political overtones would be attached to Jesus' claim? They wondered if he was John the Baptist reincarnated. Now here are a bunch of other things. In Matthew 16, verse 19, when Peter confesses Jesus as Lord, which was considered Lord of the universe over against the world, when Peter confessed Jesus as Lord, Jesus gave him the keys of the kingdom, which are symbols of authority and judgment in this new kingdom. In John 6:15, when Jesus fed the 5,000, the crowds tried to force him to become king. It says they tried to make him king by force. In Mark 11:10, during the triumphal entry, the, cloud, the crowds hailed Jesus as the leader of, quote, David's kingdom. In Matthew 26, Caiaphas, who was the high priest, questioned Jesus about his kingship and said, Tell us, if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Recorded in all four Gospels. And not a lot makes it into all four Gospels. Recorded into all four Gospels is the inscription that Pilate had hung over Jesus when he was on the cross. And it said, King of the Jews. And you know why they put that sign there? Because it indicates the crime for which the person is being crucified. The claims of Jesus to be self-consciously ushering in the kingdom of God would have very clearly been understood as a political concept in Jesus' culture. It's what got Jesus killed. So in a very real sense, was Jesus political? Absolutely. Absolutely. But not in the way we think. Not to do what we think as politics. Not to do what we think the world's power is all about. He used an ultimate power that that dwarfs the world's power in ways the world couldn't even begin to understand. And Jesus was saying, that's what I bring to the table. Let me show you some of these political overtones in Matthew 8. It's a fascinating passage here that shows us that Jesus understood himself to be establishing a kingdom beyond this world's categories. Matthew 8, 5 to 13, Centurion here says, uh, Centurion is a part of this um, here, starting in verse 5, it says, When he had entered Capernaum, remember from a few weeks ago in Mark, Capernaum sort of a northern region of Galilee. It's Jesus' home base for earthly ministry. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, meaning Jesus. Now press pause. Let's add some color to this centurion thing here uh, for a couple minutes because it helps us understand how this scene is sort of infused with political overtones. Uh, the centurion was a Gentile, meaning he was a non-Jew, And he was a Roman citizen in the Roman army. And he was in charge of at least 80 up to 100 troops. And these centurions were the backbone of the Roman army. The actual working officers on the ground. All of the real sort of day-to-day discipline and efficiency of the legion as a fighting unit depended upon the leadership of these centurions. And because most centurions achieved their position from within the ranks, 
this centurion would have been a company guy. He would have been a company man who understood where he gets his authority. And so to set the scene, here is a Roman centurion who gets his power and his authority from the most powerful political force the world knew then. And he's coming to Jesus, it says, appealing to him. Appealing to him. Verse 6, Lord. Notice he calls him Lord, which is an acknowledgement of Jesus' power and authority. Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. So notice what's going on here. A centurion who knows about worldly power and might is acknowledging the limits of his own power and that Jesus is the person alone who has power from on high, who has all power to do what he cannot do. So there's obvious humility here on the part of the centurion. He calls him Lord. He appeals to him. And so Jesus responds to that faith. Look at verse 7. He, meaning Jesus, said to him, the centurion, I will come and heal him. Even more humility and sort of deference here. Look at verse 8. But the centurion replied, Lord, calls him Lord again, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. It's a further acknowledgement of Jesus' power and authority. He's he's basically saying, Lord, you, you don't even actually have to come to here. You could take care of this right now. He says, verse 8, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. We know from uh, the parallel account In Luke 7, same story in Luke 7. We know that the centurion had heard about Jesus. He knew that he had power beyond this world's structure to just say a word and his servant would be healed. He understood that. And let's keep moving here. Verse 9, he explains sort of his thinking. This is how we know the centurion isn't just blowing smoke or flattering Jesus. Verse 9, he says, For I too am a man under authority, meaning... Jesus is under the authority of God the Father, comes with the full weight and power of God the Father. I too am a man under authority like you, Jesus. With soldiers under me, Jesus had people under him in his uh, sort of functional military. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. What Jesus responds to here and what amazed him so much about this was that the centurion understands how authority works. And he understood that Jesus spoke with an authority beyond anything the world knew as powerful. The centurion, who was in the most powerful force on the planet, understood well that Jesus came with a power beyond anything the world knew. The centurion gets it. He understands Jesus' power is beyond this earthly power structure. So verse 10, when Jesus heard this, when he heard the faith of the centurion, he marveled and said to those who followed him, there were people around him, he said, truly I tell you with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Two things. The only thing Jesus marvels at in the gospel is faith. The presence of it, and the lack of it. The only thing that amazes Jesus is the presence of faith or the lack of faith. And he is amazed here at the centurion's childlike faith. Notice that Jesus' statement isn't that no one in Israel has any faith, but that no one has this 
kind of faith, such faith like a centurion who readily acknowledges the power of God in Jesus. It's an amazing scene. Though this centurion probably didn't have the vocabulary for it, the centurion has acknowledged that Jesus is the Messiah. He's acknowledged that Jesus is Lord and comes with the power of God. The centurion gets it. Second thing to notice. And this gets us into some interesting territory that helps us understand that Jesus' political movement is worldwide power in a way that the world cannot know. Notice that Jesus is saying in verse 10 that this amazing faith is found in a Gentile, a non-Jew. That's why it amazes Jesus. There are two times Jesus is amazed at someone's faith. Here it is positively in the faith of the Gentile. The other time it's negatively in Mark 6 where Jesus is amazed at the lack of faith of those who were his own people who should know better. And here in Matthew 8, we see both of those, both of those dynamics going on as well. Jesus is positively marveling, it says, amazed at this Gentile's faith to so easily see the kingdom of God in power And Jesus is negatively amazed, sort of aghast, at his own people's inability to see the kingdom of God. So that's what's going on behind the scenes here, sort of in in Jesus' mind here. And so he makes this amazing statement. Look at verses 11 and 12. This is actually a very revolutionary thing he says here in the minds of those hearing. I tell you, which is just a way of saying, don't miss this. Many will come from east and west, meaning from all over the world and not just Israel. And they will recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. This reclining picture here is a picture of salvation. It's a picture of forever fellowship because it's in the kingdom of heaven. And this means that some are in And some are out. And Jesus blows the minds of those listening here by suggesting that some who are out are those who think they're in. Look at verse 12. I tell you, many will come from east and west, recline at table in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom, that's a term for the nation of Israel, will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing He's not saying that all Jews are condemned, obviously. He's saying that anyone, the Jewish people included, anyone who does not exhibit the same kind of childlike faith of this centurion will not be a part of the forever kingdom. So verse 13, And to the centurion Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you, as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment, boom, the kingdom of God is that powerful. The centurion acknowledged that, that with a word, Jesus could have just, and, it's, and, and his servants healed. And that's exactly what happened. Which is, an, which is an evidence in time and space of a different world that Jesus brought. So notice what's going on here in this scene. 
we know from the parallel account in Luke that Jesus is saying this in front of Jewish ruling elders of that village of Capernaum. He's saying this eye to eye with the most steeped in tradition Jews there were at the time. He's saying that this forever fellowship in the kingdom of heaven includes Gentiles, which would have been crazy talk to any Jew hearing it. They could have seen that if they'd had their eyes and hearts open to see. There's plenty of evidence, in fact, in the Old Testament that the Jews could have seen that. Isaiah 25, 6, we're not going to turn there, you're not going to look at it now, but Isaiah 25, 6 is a cool example of that, where Jesus gets this verbiage of reclining at table. It says, on this mountain, Mount Zion, the Lord of hosts, which is a way of speaking about God as a warrior for His people, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a worldwide kingdom. For all peoples He will make a feast of rich food. For all people who have faith and trust in Jesus, like this centurion. So was Jesus political? Yeah, absolutely. But in a way that blew apart human thinking and assumptions about what he was doing. They wanted Jesus to come and do what they wanted him to do. They thought he was going to bring in a kingdom and just be the ultimate worldly political force that would help justify their own life, make their life better here. What Jesus came to do was way bigger than that, was way different than that, way beyond human categories and way beyond the ways we've been taught to think about the use of power. Jesus came saying, I love my people and my people aren't just this group that my people thought was just this group. Meaning he's using his power to bring anyone who places faith and trust in him, even the, non, even the non-Jews. A God who can do that across geography, across socioeconomic lines, across race, a God who can do that through Jesus is the only person, the only being in the universe worthy of our life's vote because only he can do salvation listen put your faith in Jesus and not in worldly political power We think, we think the most important issues of our day are national security, the economy, taxes, education, gun control, same-sex marriage, religious liberty, poverty, immigration. And don't get me wrong, many of these, all of these are important issues as far as they go. And we should believe what we think is right and vote accordingly. But let me try to echo Jesus' sentiment here in his words to the centurion. If you do not acknowledge the universal power and authority of Jesus Christ as king, it doesn't matter what any worldly political system does to improve one's life. 
I mean that as definitively as it can be said. Without the acknowledgement of Jesus as Lord, it doesn't matter what any political system or leader does. It's putting around the chess pieces on the board so it makes it feel like we're playing a game. It's just making our lives a little bit better. It doesn't matter if Jesus isn't Lord of your life. It doesn't matter what anybody delivers for you. So my final challenge is this. We need to change in thinking. We need to change in perspective about who we are and why we're here. Just think of all the time and the energy and the money being spent on political issues and ideologies in our country today. <laughs> we can't even we can't begin to estimate what that all is like. Think of how much, perhaps, we have attached our personal hopes and dreams to our particular candidate being in office or to passing the right laws or to getting the right people in Congress or onto the Supreme Court. Here's my final challenge for us all. Just imagine what we could do for our nation. Imagine what we could do for our country if we were as concerned about people knowing Jesus as Lord as we are our political issues and ideologies. You care about your country? Then vote with a life that says Jesus is Lord. If you want to be a patriot, take half as much of the time and the energy and the effort and the money that our country puts into passing structures and take that the time and energy and money of proclaiming Jesus as Lord then we'll see a nation that's changed then we'll see people doing what's good and right let's pray